As Pastor Terrence introduced, our series theme is called Renewal. This is an English congregation-specific series, so we have the English in mind. Last year, last year and into 2021, we experienced a, a global crisis, a crisis that shut down our church as well as churches across the face of this earth. And as we are now in a season of reopening our indoor ministries, we have an opportunity for renewal, spiritual renewal. Now first, what do we mean by renewal? If you look on your bulletin, I've given you a definition. There's lots of definitions you can find out there when it comes to Christian renewal, spiritual renewal. But I've, I've adapted one from uh, Mark Sayers. And it's, he says, quote, the refreshment, release, and advancement that individuals and churches experience when they are realigned with God's presence, end quote. So it is a refreshed Christian life. It is a, a release into living out the victorious life that God has accomplished for us in Christ. It is realigning with God's purposes so that we advance with God's kingdom and His mission, both as individuals and corporately as a church. It's both. Because churches are filled with individual believers. And as the Spirit of God works in the hearts of individuals, and individual, individuals come together as local churches, and local churches represent... When you put all the local churches together, it represents the universal church, then that's how God moves. That is the manifestation or the representation of His kingdom currently right now in this world. And when we experience a fresh movement of the Holy Spirit corporately and individually, then it's all about God's presence. Today, what we're going to see are three covenant blessings that God gave to Israel. Israel experienced God's power in a mighty way when God delivered them from Egypt. Yet they faced a crisis, an individual crisis. Their lives were threatened. God threatened to destroy them. As well as a corporate crisis. Their identity as a nation, their identity as God's covenant people came under threat. And yes, they had plagues as well. So they, but they have three covenant blessings that God gave to them. And through Christ, God has given us the same blessing. So if you have God's word, please take it and turn with me to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. Now in Exodus 32, we're going to look at this sermon topically. We're going to look at parts of verse 32, parts of verse 33. So this is not an expository sermon. This is a topical sermon, though some of you accuse me that when I say topical, it's still expository. I'll take that as a compliment. Exodus 32. Now I want to start... In verse 7, Exodus 32, if you'll look with me in verse 7. Background first, God has delivered Israel from Egypt. God has performed miracles before their eyes in all the plagues that delivered them. In parting the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army was chasing after them. Every Israelite, whether they, they were faithful or not, crossed over. And then as Pharaoh's army tried to pursue them, the waters of judgment came down upon Pharaoh's army. And that way God delivered His people from His own judgment and His own wrath. But in the wilderness, Moses is away just for a little while. And God's people, they made a golden calf and turned to idol worship. And here's God's response, verse 7. I want you to see this. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it, sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Verse 10, Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Now stop there. Now what's happening here? I just want you to think. God delivers His people 
crossing the Red Sea. Now, God could have said, okay, you're unfaithful. You're going to drown. You're not going to come out of baptism. <laughs> okay, you're going to get baptized and die. But the rest of the, the faithful ones, I'm going to deliver them. God didn't do that. You see, it's kind of crazy because you and I think if God would just show up and perform a miracle, if God split a Red Sea in front of you, I think you would believe him. I think you would actually believe that God exists. If God performed miracles in Egypt, all these plagues to deliver you, I think you and I would actually believe that God exists. But how is it that so quickly God's people who witnessed these miracles all of a sudden wanted to attribute their deliverance and these miracles to a golden calf? And so there's some things we have to understand. As Israel crossed the Red Sea, some of them had faith in God's promise and the promise keeping God. Some of them really had faith. There were the faithful ones who believed in God, saying, look, look at our God. He's delivering us. There were those who were just going along for the ride. I mean, they couldn't go anywhere. They're part of Israel. Ethnically, they were part of the people. So would you rather be a slave, or would you rather go with the train of people migrating? So they're going along, but they don't have a personal relationship with God. They don't, they don't really believe in God, but, they, but they'll take the benefits and then there are those who are just culturally there that maybe they're very young, so they don't really understand the faith. Remember something else about Israel. The way that they learned the faith was through oral tradition. Moses was the one who wrote the first five books of the Bible. So they don't have a written tradition yet. Oral tradition is where parents teach their children the stories of Abraham. Remember, we are from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember that God promised us this land and this was just taught from the parents to their children. So you got a lot of children who are culturally Jewish during this time, right? Or culturally worshipers of Yahweh. Sounds very much like the church. COVID hits. What happens? You have those who have a personal relationship with God, who really believe in God. No matter what, God has delivered us from spiritual sin and spiritual slavery. No matter what, we're going to continue to follow God. Even if we don't hear live preaching... Even if our spokesperson, remember they didn't have Bible, so they, God spoke to them through Moses. Even though the person who speaks God's word to us is up in the mountains for a while, we still believe because we've seen God work in our lives. Then you have the people who maybe they're just going along with the church. And so they've seen the miracles themselves, but they themselves don't believe in God. And so as the pandemic hit, you see people respond differently to the faith, and some have left the faith, some have chosen other things, some have said, let's go back to Egypt. It's better. It's better to be a, a spiritual slave to this world than to worship Jesus because life has gone hard. And then you have those who are younger, and maybe the Lord used the time away to really show them what their faith is about because they're too young. They're just understanding the traditions that were taught to them. So you can see that God operated with Israel in a certain way, but still there are some parallels. This morning, you, you see in this passage now that God says in verses 7 to 10 that he's going to destroy them. Now, this is a great deal for Moses. Moses, these people are stiff-necked, meaning they're stubborn. They won't listen. So here's what I'm going to do, Moses. I'm going to destroy them and I'm going to give you a new nation. Now, a lot of us would say, oh, sure, God, we'll take that. But see, Moses knew himself to be a sinner, undeserving God's grace. Remember where Moses started. Moses murdered a man in Egypt and had to run, and then God met him and began to have this personal relationship with him. Moses knew that he was no better than any other Israelite. He also knew that these Israelites, these were his blood people. These were his people. So Moses begins to mediate, and that leads us to point number one. Point number one is God's mediator. God, Israel, by God's grace, God gave them his mediator. I want you to see what Moses said. Look at chapter 32, verse 11. 32, verse 11, it says, But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt. Stop there for a second. I want you to see something. God, when God is mad at Israel, He takes it out on Moses in some way. It's, it's not personal. 
God loves Moses. Moses knows that. And when, when the people of Israel want to complain against God, they're scared of God, so they start complaining against Moses. If you go back to verse 7, the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt. That's what God says to Moses. Moses, your Israelites whom you brought out. And look how Moses brings it back to God. Verse 11, but Moses implored the Lord and said, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, God, whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt? You see the exchange? There's this intimate exchange where Moses recognizes, God, these are your chosen people. I'm your servant. Without you, I couldn't have brought them out. You brought them out. You delivered us. But God says, Moses, you're their leader. But God loves Moses. Moses loves God. So Moses continues, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Verse 12, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent, did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that's Jacob, your servants to whom you swore your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I promised. I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And verse 14, and the Lord relented, meaning the Lord said, okay, I'm not going to destroy the people from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Why did God relent? Notice Moses. <clears throat> I want you to see his relationship with God. Moses does not say, God, then what's going to happen to me? I'm not going to have a people anymore. Mo it wasn't about the Moses show. It also wasn't about, well, God, you have to do this. For us, for me and you. Moses doesn't say that. Moses does not ground his appeal on his works or his righteousness. Moses does not place his trust or his faith or his appeal in a covenant-breaking people. Moses was most passionate, not about his own life, but about the glory of God. His appeal is a covenant-keeping God. He says, but God, what about your character? That's what's on the line, God. What about your glory? If you destroy this people, then the nations and the Egyptians are going to mock you. And they're going to say, you saved your people? You delivered them from Egypt just to kill them? God, are you serious? Your people are so stiff-necked that you can deliver them from slavery, but they're still spiritual slaves. You get that? Really, God? Really, Yahweh? No way. You could deliver them from physical slavery, but not spiritual slavery. Because as soon as you, your servant, goes into the mountains, they start worshiping an idol. Your people are weak, God, because you're a weak God. What happened to the mighty hand of God? What happened to your God? Moses says, God, what about your glory? What about your fame? Isn't the point of delivering your people for the nations to hear about how great you are? And what about your character? What about your promise? What about what you swore? You are a God who keeps your word to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's what Moses does. He quotes back to God, God's own words, God's own promise, God's own covenant, and God's glory. Moses' passion is the glory of God. That's why God loved Moses so much. Because Moses loved God. And so God hears that appeal from his mediator, the man who is so associated with the Israelites, he's one of them, that he bears the reproach of God on behalf of Israel. But God loves him so much that God identifies with him and listens to him. God's sovereign. Here you see something about the relationship that we ought to have with God. Why does God have us pray? God knows everything. God is completely sovereign. Why does he want us to pray? You know, God actually listens to us when our prayers are righteous, when we honor him. He actually answers our prayers. He knows 110% what he is going to do each and every day. All the pages of history have already been written. Yet God listens to us. He uses us relationally, answers our prayers as part of his plan being executed so that we can develop this relationship with God. It is amazing. And so 
God saves Israel once again from his own wrath. How? By his mediator. I want you to see this once more. And I want you to see how much Moses points us to Christ. Go now to verses 30 to 35. So Exodus 32, verses 30 to 35. Once again, you see Moses play the role of mediator. So Moses comes down, long story short, and and, and he's angry on behalf of God. And he says, man, God's going to destroy you. And some stuff happens, but we're not going to focus on that. Just go to verse 30. It says, the next day Moses said to the people, you've sinned a great sin. You've sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses says, perhaps, maybe I can atone for your sin. Who talks like that? Who would say I can pay for your sin? Now, he doesn't actually say, I can pay for your sin. He knows the character of God. He knows what pleases God. And he says, maybe I can pray for us. Maybe I can mediate for us. He says, so he has to go up to the mountain again. If I were Moses, I'd be frustrated. I'm like, I'm tired of hiking that mountain. I don't like hiking Mount Baldy even. Some of you do. I don't want to hike Mount Sinai again, but he does. So he, he's, he's like, I'm going to go back again. That's how much he loves them. Now Moses doesn't have to hike Mount Calvary. But he goes up Mount Sinai and he says, hopefully I can make atonement for your sin. Now look at verse 31. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, if you will, God, please But if not, please blot me out of your books that you've written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people. So he goes back now. And he says, Moses, go down and lead the people to the place of which I've spoken to you. I'm going to keep my promise. Right? Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in that day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they've made the calf the one that Aaron made. Now a few points of explanation. What is this book that Moses is saying, blot me out? Uh, Forgive them, but if you won't, take my life instead. Though In the Old Testament, there's three types of heavenly books. There's the book of the living mentioned in Psalm 69, 28, uh, in which God is thought to inscribe the names of all the living at the time, and I'll come back to this point. There's, secondly, there's the book of the divine decrees where God records the destinies of every human being. So this is like all the days of our lives have been written. It's the book of divine decrees. And you see examples of that in Ezekiel 2 and Zechariah 5, Psalm 40, Psalm 139. It's not important that you write these down. It's just reference. Third, Uh, There's the book of remembrance in Malachi chapter 3, verse 16, where it's the deeds of human beings, both good and evil, which we will be judged by. And so it's very important that you understand that in the Old Testament, I'm not going to talk about the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there are three types of heavenly books because Moses loves God. Moses is not saying, blot me out of your book of life in terms of eternal life. He's not saying, send me to hell, right? He's not saying that. Moses loves God. He wants God's presence. He's not saying that. What I believe that Moses is asking, he's referring to, similar to Psalm 69, verse 28, it's the book of the living. And in ancient times, societies and and regions, they would keep these books. And so this was not just something that was just for Israel, but they would keep books of records of populations. And they would use this similar language where everybody that was alive at that time would be recorded in a book. These are the people who are alive. And once a person dies, their names will be blotted out of the book. And so that's simply what Moses is saying. He's saying, instead of destroying them, take my life and shed my blood as an atonement if you won't forgive them. Because you can take me out of the picture. I'm just one. But if you take out Israel, you break your promise to Abraham. If you destroy Israel as a nation, then all your promises are gone, right? Your promise to make of Abraham a great nation. 
And so once again, Moses appeals to God's promise and his character and his covenant. And that's why, once again, that, that God loves Moses. And then in verse 34, you know that God doesn't destroy Israel because God listens and God says, okay, I, I want you to keep leading my people. Now, verse 34, I'm not going to get into detail about this, but when it says, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them, there's different scholars with different views, but some scholars believe that this is a future event, that this is possibly talking about the day when God will judge his people through ba Babylonian exile. Okay, we're not going to get into that because that's not the point of our, our passage today. But this is talking about a future event. Then in verse 35, when it says the Lord sent a plague on the people, we don't know too much about this plague, but what we do know is that this plague did not wipe out the nation. So maybe they got sick and they recovered. And we know that the plague was not deadly because in the very next verse, in the very next chapter, Moses has to lead the people. So God keeps the people alive. Right, so that's point number one, is that God gives Israel an opportunity to experience renewal even in the midst of crisis, which is God's going to destroy them. That's a huge crisis. They've turned to idolatry. That's a huge crisis. But how does God deliver them? How does God save them? Number one, God gives them Moses as a mediator, the man who was so close to God, yet so close to the Israelites, who loved the Israelites. And even when he had the chance to say, okay, God destroyed them, Moses says, no, God, don't destroy them. Keep them alive. Take my life instead. We can see how Moses points us towards Christ. But point number two is God's favor. And this takes us into chapter 33, God's favor. I want you to look at verses 1 to 5 first. <clears throat> it says, the Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here. You and the people, this is how we know the plague was not a deadly plague. Depart, go up from here, you and the people, whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt. So now it's back on Moses, right? To the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and all other sites. Verse 3, Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. This is not talking about Irvine, California. It's talking about the land of Canaan. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are stiff-necked people. That's hilarious. God's basically saying, I'm going to send my angel, so I'm not leaving you alone. I'm keeping my promise to Abraham, God says. I'm going to let you take the people to the land, but, I, but I'm not going with you. I'm going to send an angel instead. Because if I go with you, I cannot stand the people's who complain and the stiff-necked people. I, I, God's a holy God. He's just going to consume them with a consuming fire. He's going to destroy them. And so this is really important. And this tells you something about God, is that God keeps His promise. He keeps His promise exactly to the dime. His promise to Abraham is, I will be your God and you will be my people. And I will promise you this land. So God keeps his promise, but God never promised that he himself has to go with the people because he can still be their God and send an angel. He can still give them to the land and not go with them because if he goes with them, he's going to consume them. And so you know that. So you get all these themes coming out now, right? Where in Genesis 3, what happens? Adam and Eve sinned, and what's the punishment? Get out of my presence. Exit the garden. You can't live in my presence, but I will send the promised seed of Eve one day to deliver you. They go into the promised land. There's the tabernacle where God dwells with them. There's the temple eventually, but they turn to idols. So what does God do? Get out of the land and the temple's burned, tabernacle's gone. You see, the, the Israel doesn't get it. They want the benefits of being God's people. But they don't want God. They never learn. It's not about just delivering, being delivered into, out of Egypt. It doesn't matter about getting into the land. If God's not there, it doesn't matter. It's better to be with God in the wilderness than to be in the promised land with no God, with just an angel. Because an angel cannot save. Now you're beginning to understand Hebrews. 
You can go into the promised land and we can have God's angels, but the angel cannot save. Angels cannot make atonement. You need a mediator and you need his presence. You need his favor. You need God's favor to be with you. And God's favor is conveyed when he goes with you, when he's with you. And so I want you to now look at verse 4 because it's really interesting. Look at how Israel responds. He says, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. No one put on his ornaments. These are not Christmas ornaments. <laughs> These are, this is jewelry. This is their bling. Verse 5, for the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people, stubborn. For a single moment, I should go among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, your jewelry, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of all their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now, why did they take off their jewelry? Because in ancient times, when you, when you adorned yourself with jewelry, it, it was symbolic of being cheerful, of being joyous. It was celebratory. And God wanted to see that they were broken, that they were remorseful, that they were broken to the core and saddened by their breaking of covenant, by their sin, that they were truly confessing their sins and that they would be repentant. But what's interesting is how they responded. I really think in a consumeristic Western culture, we would have taken God's deal. We would have said, God, okay, so you're telling me this, God, you're not going to go with us, but you're still going to give us the land. We'll take the benefits. So, so we still get the land with the milk and honey? That's great, Lord. And you're going to give us an angel to drive out the bad guys? That's great. We'll take that. You don't need to go with us. How many people live the Christian life that way? Say, God, thank you for saving me from hell. Thank you for giving me mental and emotional eternal life insurance. You don't need to be involved in my life now. Thank you. I'll go to church a couple times. When I need you, I'll pray to you. But thank you very much, Jesus, for saving me. I'm going to live my life on my own now. I'll take it. Thanks for the promised land. Thanks for heaven. I'll go on my own now. But the Israelites, they don't respond that way. They saw that as a disastrous word. And so their hearts are beginning to change. That's how you know that, they, that at this point they're beginning to repent. Is that they, like Moses, are saying, God, we don't want the land without you. If only the American church would learn this. If only the evangelical church would learn this, that you can't have church without Jesus. You can't have church without the Holy Spirit unleashing his gifts and his power and his manifestations. You, it doesn't matter what kind of plans you have, what kind of Bible knowledge you have. If you don't have the presence of God, if you don't have believers filled with the Spirit, you have nothing. And the Israelites are beginning to learn this in their Old Testament, Old Covenant context. So you look at how Moses prays now. So verses 7 to 11, we're going to skip that and we're going to jump to verse, verses 12 because again, like I said, this is a topical sermon. Moses said to the Lord, and I want you to see this theme of God's favor. If you don't have God's favor, you don't have his grace. Okay, so look at verse 12 now, starting verse 12 of Exodus 33. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people and you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Look at how many times that's repeated. Favor, favor in your sight, favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. Look at how Moses mediates for them again. Favor in the sight of God is to be justified. Favor in the sight of God. You get this picture of a sinner standing in the presence of a holy God, knowing that God will destroy you, but saying, God, you've shown me grace. That you've looked upon me, and even though I don't deserve it, you've forgiven me, and you've related to me. Look at how 
Moses, he does not appeal once again to his righteousness. He doesn't say, well, look, God, look at all the good things that I've done for you. Look at how I listen to you. Look at how I am, I am representing a people who, who do a lot of good works, right? Look at, God, how I went to Pharaoh, and that was scary. And I went a bunch of times to Pharaoh, and he didn't listen, and I kept going. Look at how these people complain against me, and I keep following you. Moses does not appeal on the grounds of his righteousness or his good works. Uh Uh-uh. He appeals to God, but you showed grace towards me. God, but you showed favor to me. So if, if I've really found favor in your sight, then what about your people? These are your people too, and I'm one of them. And so that's what he's saying. Consider too that this nation is your people. I can just see Christ on the cross. And what happens one day after he dies and he goes before God, resurrected, and saying, God, but these are your people. You've showed favor upon me on the cross. You've accepted my sacrifice, Jesus says. And these are the people, these are your people whom I died for. Moses is going the same way, only he's not Christ. But he points us towards Christ. If you found favor with me. But I also want you to see how Moses talks to God like a friend. Now this is very interesting because we are a church with a high view of God, right? We're a church that has a lot of Bible knowledge. Moses, he's not a guy who has no reverence for God. He's not a guy who says, oh, well, God is just like this. He's not a God that way. He has seen the burning bush. He's seen God move. He's been to Mount Sinai. So if anyone has a high view of God, that's Moses. If anybody knows that God is holy, that you can't look upon God, that's Moses. Yet the more he learns about this holy, big God that says, I'm going to destroy the people and consume them, the more he learns that God is calling him, Moses, draw near. Draw near to me because I, 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 don't worry, don't be afraid of me. You found favor in my sight. And the more he learns about God's grace, the more of God he wants. You see that his theology of God, a high view of God, did not lead to distance from God. It led to intimacy with God. That he's like, God, I'm not going to do things for you without you going with us. I'm not going to go to church and serve without the Holy Spirit being intimate and working through me. I'm not going to go without this prayer life. I'm not going to speak for you if you're not right here with me. I need to climb this mountain to be close to you, God. God, even when I appeal to you, I'm not afraid. I, I fear you, but I'm not afraid to tell you your word and your character because I trust so much who you are. Moses loves God. That's why God loved Moses so much. Moses loved God more than Israel, more than the promises, more than the gifts. He loved the giver. And so that leads, God's favor leads to point number three, God's presence. Moses knows that he's been shown God's grace. His confidence is not in a covenant keep breaking people. It's not in his own abilities or his own righteousness. It's in God and God's character, and God's favor and grace. And that leads to point number three, God's presence. Look at verses 14 to 23 of Exodus 33. Exodus 33, verses 14 to 23. So, and it says, he said, my, so this is what God says in response to Moses. It says, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. So God listens because Moses cries out and says, God, I want you. I don't want the angel. I, I appreciate the angel. I appreciate the land. I want you. If you don't go with us, I don't want to go. Look at what it says, verse 14. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Verse 15, and he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Let me pause right there and put some modern application in. What if God were to say to a pastor, Pastor, just go. I'll give you a church of 5,000 people and a bunch of buildings. Just go. But I'm not going to go with you. I'll send you my angel. God, if you don't go, 
If you don't go, we have nothing. Oh, give you buildings and give you all this. But you guys don't want me. You guys want to do your own vision and your own thing. You want to get busy. Look at your people. They serve everywhere and that's great. I love service, but they don't want to come to worship. They'd rather cook or do I. And I understand people got to do things for me. We can do things for God. But if God doesn't go with us, we got nothing. If we don't have the power of the Spirit, if the Holy Spirit's not moving, we don't got anything. But, 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 but God, look at, all, look at all the theology that we teach. Look at, look at the laws that we have. Look at, look at how much our people know the Bible. Moses got the law. He didn't worship the law. His, this is the problem with American evangelicalism. So many people have turned their faith into a doctrinal statement. I'm good with God because I'm conservative theologically. Well, what do you know about God? Well, I believe in these 10 doctrines and I know all my theology. And so my relationship with God is a piece of paper. And then I go live my life how I want. That's great. You need the law, but you have God. You, you need the doctrinal statement, but is that all your relationship with God is? Is a piece of paper with a bunch of statements. Truth without the true God is nothing. Moses says, look, I, we got the law. Thank you. We got all this, but we need you. God loves that. So he says, okay, because you ask for my presence, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And look at, this is what sets us apart from the world. This is what sets Israel apart from the nations. Verse 15, and he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us from here. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Stop there for a moment. How will people know that you have shown us grace? How can we say that we are people of the gospel? How can we say we're forgiven? How can we say we have good news? How can we say that we have your favor if your presence is not with us? If people can't tell that you live with us and among us and through us and in us, how will they know that we're any different from the unbeliever? I say I have power. Where is my power? Is it in my statement? Is it in my buildings? Is it in our services? How will people know that we are Christian if it is not that we have a going God? Say this with me. We have a God that goes with us. Say it with me. We have a God that goes with us. We have a God that goes with us. We have a God that goes with us without his going presence that means everywhere you and i go he goes with us without that there's nothing distinct from us and the unregenerate the unsaved the non-christian and that's what it says how will go back to the verse verse 16 for how shall it be known that i found favor in your sight i and your people moses never says just him he never says, I'm much holier than my people. He says, I and your people, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of this earth? You see how God's testing Moses, even relationally? God keeps saying, you lead them, your people. And Moses is once again says, God, let me remind you, I and your people. God's just testing Moses. Moses passes the test every time. He says, these are your people. Me, me, we're yours. If you don't go with us, we have nothing. If there's this divine exchange almost, you can see Christ doing that. God looks down. Jesus, look at your church. Look how sinful they are. I'm talking about right now, okay? Right now, the Father and Son are in heaven. The Spirit's moving around among us, filling us, indwelling in us. The Father looks at the Son right now in heaven. Look at your churches. Look at them. And then Jesus says, Father, remember, these are your people. I died for them. If, you, if you've shown me favor as your son, these are your people. God's like, that's right. God looks upon Christ. He's satisfied. Same thing, but prototypically with Moses. It is beautiful. Now look at verses 17 to 23. It says, The Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you've spoken... I will do, for you have found favor once again in my sight, and I know you by name. So God says, I know you relationally. You have a relationship with me personally. And once again, you found favor because you keep asking for me, my presence, and, and you keep 
trusting in my character and my promises, and you want my fame, God says, to be known. It was never about Moses. It was always about God. And so God says, I'll do it, meaning I'm going to go with you. And verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. Moses, don't you know your theology? Don't you know? Don't you have a high view of God, Moses? Haven't you read Isaiah? No. Isaiah hasn't been written yet. Okay, we'll forgive you, Moses. Moses, don't you know your theology? Don't you know that you can't see God? Even Tupac knows that, right? You can't see me. Like, don't you know that you can't see God and live? Once again, high and accurate theology does not mean distance from God. Reverence from God should lead to more intimacy with God unless you don't really know Him. And so Moses says, God, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and you will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for a man shall not see me and live. Moses knows this. Yet Moses said, but God, I want to see you. I long for you. You see, his high and accurate theology, his reverence for God, his Bible knowledge was not just left on a paper, but he wanted more of God. And God says, you cannot see my face. But verse 21, the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not, shall not be seen. So basically God says, says, if you truly see my face, you're going to die because Christ hasn't come yet. You're, st- you're not in your resurrected body. You're a finite human being. Moses, you're a sinner as well. So here's what I'm going to do. Go over there, there's a rock over there, and I'm going to hide you in that cleft, and symbolically my hand's going to hold you and hide you, and the backside of me is going to pass by you. And you're going to get a glimpse of my glory, but you can't see me face to face. I'm setting you up for a sermon later where Paul says, we can see Christ, and we, we're being transformed in the direct presence of God. That's the difference between us and the Israelites and Moses. But you see what happened with Moses. He loved God so much. Again, big God theology did not draw him away from God. It made him want God more. So why is it that conservative churches with good doctrine and theology are afraid of the Holy Spirit in God's presence? Why is it that we want everything, yeah, good reverence and all that, that's all good. But, but how come our services at times feel so distant to God? It's like mechanics. You know, everything is liturgical and just mechanics. But what happened to what makes us distinct is the power, anointing, and presence of the Spirit who lives in us being unleashed in us and through us. What happened to the people who know that we can be close to God and we can talk about a God who's close to us because we found favor in God, because we have Christ as our mediator. The big idea of this morning's message is Christ is our mediator who brings us into God's favor and gives us God's indwelling presence. Christ is our mediator who brings us into God's favor and and gives us God's indwelling presence. When we go back to the definition of renewal that we're adopting, it is the refreshment, release, and advancement that individuals and churches experience when we are realigned with God's presence. So what we need, we have Christ as our mediator. We know that theologically. He brings us into God's favor. That's the gospel of grace. We know that. But we need to cry out and pray for God's indwelling presence. I will be the first to confess that during COVID and after and coming back, I said, God, you know, what's going on with our church? And God will convict me and says, well, Hanley, you know, your church, churches are going to be like their pastors. What churches are passionate about are what their pastors are passionate about. And God convicted me and said, Hanley, you're really passionate about theology, so your church is going to love theology, especially Reformed theology. Your church, you really love knowledge, so your church is going to love Sunday school and learning. Hanley, you're not that passionate about prayer or intercessory prayer 
or praying, laying of hands for healing, which we believe God heals. I'll confess to you, prior to COVID, Wednesday is a stressful time because you've got to get everything done for the weekend. So in prayer meeting, a lot of you aren't there. I'm in the back. I, I pray a little bit. I have my computer. I'm working on my sermon. I'm stressing out about getting my outline done by Friday. And then, you know, I'll, I'll close my laptop when we break into groups and pray. I'll be there in prayer meeting just dead tired, exhausted, nothing left. So, of course, I'm not going to get up here and say, please come to prayer meeting. <laughs> I'd be a hypocrite. And I still tell PT sometimes, I'm tired. Every Wednesday night doing the Zoom prayer meeting, I'm just tired. But the conviction says, Hanley, until you walk the walk and until you're passionate, begging people to pray, you will not see renewal. Because when you look through scripture and when you look at church history, revivals and renewals never happen apart from prayer. So you need to find the people in your church who are passionate about prayer and unleash them. You got enough theologians. You got enough Bible teachers. You got enough Reformed Calvinists. You got enough of the big theology people. Do you have prayer warriors? If FCBC Walnut wants to experience renewal, you have to have prayer. And it starts with you, Hanley, and you're at fault. I say, God, forgive me. I repent. I repent of being lackadaisical and tired and worried about sermon prepping during prayer meeting. Because even if the sermon outline is good and the manuscript is written, if I am not with you, if you're not on your knees, if I'm not speaking through you, you have nothing. And God, need I needed COVID and being closed and, and just being away to, to finally hear the voice of God in the wilderness of the pandemic. What about you, beloved? So I repent of not leading you more passionately into prayer. That's the first application. Big God theology does not mean distance from God. I also want to repent of my dogmatism of leading you for how we worship. I, I'm not changing my views. I, 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 I'm telling you that for the longest time, I always told our worship leaders, don't choose too many songs with I because worship is not about me and you and what we do for God and what we sing about God. It's about God. So we want hymns and we want songs that talk about theology. We want to talk about what God does. And that makes me really good in terms of Reformed theology. But when you look at Moses, there's a place for the high view of God's songs, but there's also places if the songs are proper, if it's not a mantra, if it's not overly repetitive, if it's not all about us. And nowadays, by God's grace, there's a lot of songs that are from charismatic authors who are actually, the, the, the theology is actually decent. And I'm saying, no wonder our people don't have a close relationship with you. I've told them, only sing about the distant God, the big God, the God who will crush you and destroy you and consume you. And so I want to encourage you, that yes, when you come to church, there's corporate songs where we're singing, not about, God, I do this for you, I dance with you. Yeah, yeah, we got to be balanced, but find the songs also like Moses, where it says, God, I want to move your heart. God, I, I want to invite you into my presence. That's not bad theology. You know that God is omnipresent. You know God's everywhere. But look at how God wants Moses to pray to him. He said, God, please show favor. Please show up with us. Please go with us. Please be with us. How do we lead our people, both through our preaching, our prayer, and our singing, to be more intimate with God? Both a high view of God, like Moses, but an intimate view of God. So in our music, in our singing, do we reflect a spiritual rhythm that's balanced, where we have a high view of God that will consume us, yet an intimate God who wants us to actually invite Him into our lives? Because if we don't, even though He's there, guess what? We live independent of Him. Because that's our human flesh. And if we don't ask God, God, show up here. God, touch me here. God, I want to see your face like Moses. I, I, want to, I want to know you more. I want to see your face. 
I want to dwell in your presence. Well, Hanley, don't you know your theology that you can't see the face of God? But look, God wants to see our hearts. He wants to see our desire. And so there's a balance in worship of spirit and truth. That's the second application as a church, that renewal comes when our rhythms are aligned with, with wanting intimacy with a big God. And thirdly, service for God. Moses did a lot of service for God, even to the point where he was doing too much and, and didn't know how to delegate. And his father-in-law Jethro says, look, you've got to delegate, right? And he led Israel according to the law. They didn't have the new covenant yet, so they were all about doing what God tells you to do. FCBC Walnut, we are a church that does well. I mentioned that. We are a church that serves well. But we need to pray well, sing well, and worship well. Our service will not have power. It will get done. But it will not have power to convert souls and to rescue sinners and to sanctify the believer unless we have the Spirit's presence and power. And again, it starts with the relation with God. We learn from Moses. Moses had those intimate times of dwelling with God, and God said, okay, Moses, I will let you go. I will move. I will show up with you. I will be with you in your service. I will go with you because you've found favor. Why? Because you've prayed with me. You've talked to me. And so three areas, right, in our Bible study and our knowledge, in our singing, in our music, in our prayer life, and singing prayer together. And in our service, we have to have a renewed desire for God's intimate presence. So let me pray and close us. Father, we come before you, and I repent as a pastor for not leading our church to be more passionate about prayer and intimacy in our preaching, in our prayer, in our singing. And that has impacted our service. Father, as we have this opportunity to not take anything for granted, being able to gather in person, we thank you. Being able to sing in person, we thank you. Being able to reopen our ministries, we thank you. Being able to have a new building coming, we thank you. We thank you for what we have. Lord, renew our desire to be close to you, to be intimate with you each and every day as individuals and corporately. Give us a passion for prayer and worship. Help us to sing as if you are our only hope in life and death because you are. Thank you for sending us Christ so that we can have what Israel did not have, so that we can be more like Moses and actually come and draw near to you in the name of Jesus. Help us to sing now with passion and gratitude. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.